If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel according to Luke. If you would, we'll be in Luke chapter 22, and we will begin in verse 39 in just a moment. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. And you'll remember that we're speeding our way towards Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and of course His resurrection, which we will celebrate and remember on, uh, on Easter. Uh, and last week we looked at Him celebrating the Passover with His disciples. You remember He went up into the upper room. And he took those elements of the, of the Passover and he transformed the meaning of some of them, um, the, some of the elements of it, namely the bread and the fruit of the vine, the, the, the grape juice, and he transformed them into the Lord's Supper. And now the, the bread is, is representative of his body, which was broken for us, and the, uh, the, the juice is a represent, representation of the, uh, the, the blood of the covenant, which was poured out. For us Now today where we pick up is right where we left off last week. We're going to look at the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. The betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And again, this is a lengthy passage. We're going to have uh, lengthy passages the next few, uh, next few weeks until we get to Easter. Uh, but right now we're going to pick up in verse 39. And if you found it and are able, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's word. And we'll read down to uh, verse 65. <clears throat> says, And he came out, this is speaking of Jesus, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Sorry, blaspheming. And uh, go ahead and and have a seat if you would. (coughs) 
And as, uh, as with uh, our text last week, it was a, a pretty lengthy one. We kind of hit these things in summary fashion. I just wanted to touch on some of the highlights and draw your attention to uh, a couple things, though many of the um, uh, elements in here deserve a bit of attention. But the first thing I want you to see is the prayer of Jesus. The prayer of Jesus. Now remember where we, where we picked up last week, and I mentioned this before. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper with the disciples. Judas has, has already put plans in place to betray Jesus. He's already gone to the, to, to the religious leaders. He's already said, I will betray him. And they said, we'll give you some money. And that is good with Judas because Judas was a, uh, he, he, his main affliction was avarice. He was very greedy. He was covetous. He would steal money from, uh, from the disciples and all sorts of things. And so he was happy to take some money to betray Jesus. And so he had, he had put these plans in place, and Luke doesn't record this, but the other gospel writers do. Uh, while Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, Judas leaves, and he goes to, uh, to betray Jesus to the authorities. So, uh, so Jesus is walking out with the eleven, and, and he's, he's gone through telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also, and so on and so forth. Then we get in John 14 through 16. He's warned them about the dangers that's coming, and he concludes in our text last week by saying that if you don't have a sword, if you don't have a means of self-defense, you need to sell what you have and buy one. And then we pick up in verse 39, and it says that as was his custom, he went out to the Mount of Olives. This was his, his modus operandi, you might say. In chapter 21, it says that daily, Jesus was going into the temple, he was teaching the people, and every night he was leaving Jerusalem, and he would go stay on the Mount of Olives. And so, so, so Judas, all the disciples, they knew where he was going. He was going to the Mount of Olives, and there was an olive grove there, and he was going specifically to that place, to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means uh, an olive press. And so he, he was going there. It was a time of, of prayer. He probably would teach the disciples as he had them there privately. And he takes them all as a big group, has most of them stay in one area. And other gospel writers record they took Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden. And then he had them stop, and then he goes even further off by himself to pray. Now, he was far enough away to be private, but not so far away that they couldn't see him and hear him. And so Jesus goes and he begins to pray and he's very fervent in his prayer. Now, this is just kind of a side note, but I just want to, just want to mention it. There are times in Jesus' life when, when he was like the... He succeeded where others had failed. And what I mean by that, if you think about um, his baptism, he comes up out of the, the, the Jordan River, John the Baptist has baptized him, the, the, the spirit descends like a dove, and then he goes out into the wilderness where he's... He's there for 40 days, and he's tempted by the devil. Now, he is out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Does that seem familiar? It should, because if you think about the Old Testament, the Israelites were in the wilderness not for 40 days, but for 40 years, and they were tempted. They didn't trust God. They failed in that area. Jesus passed the test. He trusted God, and so he, he succeeded where Israel had failed. Now, think about here, here is the, second, the, the, the last Adam. In a garden. Does that make you think of another Adam in a garden? And, and that, that Adam, he was tempted by the devil and he failed. He disobeyed God. He was willful. And here is the last Adam in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is tempted. He is, he is uh, uh, pressured to give in, to, to th- try to thwart the, uh, the, the plan of God. And yet he submitted, uh, submitted to and followed the will of the Father. He succeeded where the first Adam had failed. So anyway, they, they get to where they're going in verse 40. 
and he tells them to pray. Now, I think I mentioned this last week, but if it was, I think if it was me, I would have said, guys, I need you to pray for me. I mean, I, I just have little things come up in my life, and I'm like, man, I, I, I hope people are praying for me. I, I, don't, I don't feel good. I have this, this little situation coming up. It kind of stressed me out, and I want people to pray for me. And Jesus tells these guys to pray, but he doesn't say pray for me. Who does he say to pray for? He says pray for yourself. He says pray that you don't enter into temptation. Now temptation, the, the word to tempt, um, in, in the Jewish conception of things, there are two different ways you could be tempted. You could be tempted like a, a solicitation to evil, trying to get you to do wrong stuff. Or temptation can also mean a time of, of difficulty and testing. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there, there's going to be a, a time of difficulty coming. Pray that you don't succumb to it. And he goes off by himself to pray. Now notice in verse 42 what kind of prayer it was. First and foremost, it is a submissive prayer. It was a submissive prayer. Look at what he says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what lay ahead. Now, when we think about the cross, most, most of us probably just think about the physical suffering. And the physical suffering was indeed intense. It was so bad, it, it, was, it was so extreme they didn't even have a word to describe the, the agony that a person felt. And so they had to come up with a, a whole new word to describe the pain associated with crucifixion. And Jesus knew that was coming. But that's not where the, the, the primary agony was coming from. This, this stress, this, this anguish that he's, coming, uh, that he's experiencing came in the, in, in the sense that he knew... So get, get, now think about it. For all eternity... Jesus has been in perfect harmony and fellowship with the Father within the Godhead. But on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our griefs, He Himself bore. Our sorrows, He carried. The, the, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And in that time on the cross, the perfect, unspotted, sinless Lamb of God took on all the filth, and the mire, and the repugnance of sin. He took that on himself. And that intimate fellowship was broken. And on top of that, there's also the prospect of bearing the full, undiluted wrath of God against sin in his body. The Bible says that, that, that God poured out his, his, his full wrath. And, and, and we get that because the Bible says Jesus is a propitiation. That means he, he, he satisfied a debt. He paid the price. That all who would trust in him for salvation would have their sins forgiven. And today he offers that, that, salva that gift of salvation to whosoever will. Whosoever will may believe. And that gift is not COD, cash on delivery, because you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You, you, don't, you don't deserve it. It's paid in full by Jesus Christ. And as he prayed, he dreaded drinking the cup of God's wrath. He was in agony at the prospect of that harmony being disrupted. And in his humanity, he prayed that if it would be possible, that that cup would pass from him. But, but you'll notice that he was fully devoted to and in in, in complete submission to the Father's will. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
But not only was it a submissive prayer, it was an agony-filled prayer. It was an agony-filled prayer. Look at verses 44 and following. Luke, who is a physician, is the only gospel writer to record this detail. But it says that, that his sweat began to fall like, like great drops of blood. Now, it wasn't just sweat. He, he was under such stress as he was praying. It caused him to perspire. Have you ever prayed so hard that you sweated? I have not. But that's what Jesus, that was the intensity, the fervency of his prayer. And we know it wasn't because it was hot, because what was Peter doing? He was warming himself by a fire. It was a cool night. But yet Jesus was sweating. He was, he, he was so intense and fervent in his prayer. And, and the, the, the spiritual warfare that, he was bad, that, he, that was being waged by Christ was so strong. It caused him to not only perspire, but also to literally sweat blood. Now that is a rare physical condition. It's been observed a few times throughout history where the capillaries, the, the little blood vessels in the skin, dilate so much they actually burst. And the blood comes out of the pores of the skin. And I don't know if we can have a more vivid picture of the stress that Jesus is under at this point. He is literally sweating blood. He's pouring his heart out to the Father. He's pleading with him. And yet the disciples are sleeping. Now, we give the disciples a bad rap sometimes, and sometimes they deserve it because they're pretty slow about understanding. But if you'll notice, they were not sleeping because they took this lightly. Jesus went and he, he, uh, he found them sleeping. But if you look at verse 45, he found them sleeping not because of, of, of uh, unconcern, but they were sleeping because of sorrow. In other words, they didn't understand all that Jesus was saying. He, they didn't understand all that Jesus was going to do. They didn't get the big picture. But the little bit they got was so discouraging and sad and depressing, it exhausted them. And no doubt, we've each, each of us have had seasons of life where, where we, grief just saps your strength, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you've lost a loved one or something like that, and it just wears you out. And that's what happened to these disciples. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is recorded in other Gospels saying, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So it wasn't that these guys were, were thinking this was just a, a minor thing. They were, they, they were trying, but they were weak. So we have the prayer of Jesus. Second, I want you to see the betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas. So Jesus goes, he finds the disciples sleeping. The other, gospel recorder, other gospel writers record this happened multiple times. Luke only records the last time. And he's standing there, and even as he's speaking, here comes Judas, followed by a large crowd. He, he's out front. He is the one who's going to point Jesus out to them. Now understand, when we think of a large crowd coming to arrest Jesus, we might think of 10 or 15 people, maybe even 20 or 30. Now that's a pretty good-sized crowd to arrest a, a guy that's never been violent, right? Maybe we, maybe we can think about a, 100 people. That, I mean, we can't even imagine 100 people come to circle around Jesus to arrest him. We don't know how many there were, but we know that um, uh, according to uh, verse 52, there were chief priests, officers of the temple, elders. They come out to arrest him, so there are several people. John 18.3 says that Judas was also leading the Roman cohort. A cohort was an army battalion. Now, in, in Rome's history, there were, a cohort was a different amount depending on what year it was. 
but it ranged from 420 to 600 people. So here is Judas leading several hundred people. Torches, clubs, swords, you name it. They're out to arrest Jesus. A huge crowd surround Jesus. And notice the nature of the betrayal. In verse 47, he does this with a kiss. Now, I'm not a real sentimental guy, but a kiss is something special, isn't it? I mean, there's a level of intimacy involved in that. One time I was at a, a, a wedding. And I'd, I'd never been to a Catholic wedding before, but part of this wedding, they had everybody stand up, and then they said, turn and give each other a kiss. And there was this old lady in front of me. She turned and looked at me. I was like, oh, we, I do not know you that well. I didn't say that, but I think my look must have... That must have communicated that because she didn't give me a kiss. Maybe a scarlet's look next to me. I said, you know, I, I don't know. But anyway, anyway, there's a level of intimacy involved, right? If a, a, between a man and a woman, if, if, if a husband and wife, there's a level of intimate romance. In some cultures, such as in Jesus's, close friends not only shake hands, we give each other a hug or, or an embrace. They'll actually kiss each other on the cheeks. I'm glad we don't live in that kind of a culture. Also in Jesus' culture, a student may uh, kiss the, the, the cheek or even the hand of their teacher. There's a level of intimacy there. And here's Judas. The, 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 he takes this sign of intimate friendship of a student greeting his beloved teacher. And he uses that as the very sign and signal to the hostile crowd that this is the guy you need to arrest. Think of the gall of that. Think of the hypocrisy of that. The amount of callousness in Judas's heart. And notice verse 47, Jesus is not, uh, he, he's not confused by any of it. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He, he says, Judas, I know what you're doing. Now, the disciples, we don't know which one it was that asked. Maybe it was Peter, maybe it wasn't. But whoever it was said, Lord, do you want us to use the swords you told And I'm going to kind of fill in the blanks. You want us to use them swords you told us to have earlier? And, you, and, and we have two of them. You want us to use them against these hundreds of guys? That's behind the question. And Peter, he doesn't wait for an answer, does he? He says, swords, all right. You know, and he grabs a sword and he goes to hacking. And he, he starts swinging. And again, he, he cuts off the, the, the ear of the high priest's servant who is also in the crowd. And again, we give Peter a, a real hard time around this time of his life. And, and rightfully so. I mean, he failed. But remember, he had just gotten through saying, Jesus, I'll stand by you even if it means death. And here are hundreds of armed soldiers around Peter, and he's got one sword. He's going, to make him, he's going to make him work for it. Now you may get Jesus, but you're going to have to go through me to get him. There's, there's something to be said for that. But Jesus stops Peter in his tracks, and in yet another act of mercy, he heals the man's ear who is there to arrest him, to take him to, to die. Now just think about that. And, and why didn't any of these guys that came to arrest Jesus see what he was doing and say, you know... Maybe it's not a good idea for us to arrest this guy who can do that. Maybe it's not a good idea for, for us to arrest this, this guy who says he's a Messiah. And he's healing. He's not overthrowing us. He's not fighting against us. 
He's got one guy that wants to fight us, and he told him to stop. At least Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off, you'd think he'd say, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't be trying to have Jesus arrested. He just put my ear back on. And we look at that, and it's, it's hard to believe on one hand, but on the other hand, it's not really that hard to believe because we see it every day. The, the specifics are different, but the idea, the attitude behind it is the same. Romans 2.4 says, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. In other words, God is kind and gracious to people. He, he, he protects them from car wrecks. He saves them from house fires. He, he heals sick bodies. He does all this good to people. He shows them kindness, but that kindness is not salvation. That kindness should lead to salvation. It's like when, when a kid misbehaves and, and they have a consequence that is associated with their misbehavior and you don't give it to them. Your hope may be this child will recognize the wrong that they've done. They'll recognize the consequence that they had coming from, from that. They'll see that I did not give them that consequence. Hopefully they will be grateful and change what they're doing. Change their ways. But instead, and you know this because you've, you've been on the other side of that, instead what do we do? We don't change our ways. Instead, we, we take advantage of that. We say, well, I'm not getting the bad stuff, so I'm going to do the, the wrong some more. Or I'm going to maybe even do something worse. And this may describe you today. Maybe you've mistaken the goodness of God, the kindness of God for salvation. It's not. It should lead to salvation. Maybe you've, you've mistaken the, the kindness of God for laxity on God's part. It's not. He's trying to lead you to salvation. Now Jesus takes this and he points out their dishonesty. He says in, in verses 52 and 53, Every day I was with you in the temple. Every day this week you didn't do anything. I've, I've done nothing violent in the past. Here you are out to arrest me. Swords and clubs like you would against a, a criminal. You didn't lay hands on me when I was there in, in public. Instead, you're here making an illegal arrest at night with hundreds of armed guards and, and armed, armed soldiers under the cover of night. And finally, I want you to see the denial of Peter. The denial of Peter. They arrest Jesus. They lead him away first to the house of Annas, which Luke doesn't record, but then to the high priest's uh, house, and his name was Caiaphas. Now they take him to Caiaphas's house to have the trial. And again, this is an illegal trial. Because you couldn't have a trial at night. You had to have it during the day, out in public. You didn't have a, 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 a trial at somebody's private residence. There was a place in the temple where you did that. This was all a setup. So they take Jesus to the house, and Peter follows along, and again... Peter, Peter did pretty good the first time. He was, he was ready to stand with the Lord. But he fails here. And it's kind of like when, when, when Peter goes walking on the water. You know what? He, he gets out there and yes, he looks around and his faith begins to waver and he begins to sink. And we look at that and say, well, there's where he failed. That's true. But where was he at when he failed? He was at least out of the boat. Now Jesus is on trial here. And Peter, all, all the disciples fled. They all deserted him, but Peter's following along. He's not up there trying to defend Jesus, but he's, he's closer than what the other disciples are. 
So he sent with the people who had arrested Jesus, warming himself by a fire. And, and, and what it kills me is he has hundreds of guys that he's ready to fight. And here's one servant girl who looks at him and says, Hey, you're one of them, weren't you? It's kind of like, like Elijah. Remember he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them? No, I mean, he, he, would, he, had, he had a backbone. That guy did. And yet when Jezebel said, if, if not, I'm going to put you to death, and he starts running. Likewise, Peter here, he's ready to fight a whole Roman cohort. And a servant girl says, you, you were with Jesus. He says, I don't even know the guy. Later, a man accuses him of the same Peter denies knowing him. And then there's a pause. He lets his guard down. The Bible says about an hour elapses. Peter began to get more comfortable. And this man begins to insist that he was with Jesus because he was a, he's a Galilean. So it doesn't have to do with anything. Well, Jesus was from Galilee. And Galileans didn't talk the same way that Judeans did. So in Jerusalem, that's in Judah. And Galilee's a whole other area. It's kind of like, you ever talk to somebody and they have a, maybe a foreign accent or just about as a foreign accent, they're from the north. And you talk to them and you say, you're not from around here, are you? And, and likewise, if you've ever gone to a place that, that, that maybe has a different dialect, they, they look at you and say, so where are you from? Well, how do you know I was from somewhere else? Well, you don't talk like us. Same, same thing with Judeans and Galileans. Jesus was from Galilee. Peter's from Galilee. So he didn't talk the way they did. He had an accent that was different from theirs. And so they put two and two together and said, hey, you're one of them too. And he says, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. And before the words even get out of his mouth, the rooster crows. And just put yourself in Peter's place. All of a sudden, the, the, the rooster crows and you freeze. Because you remember what Jesus has said just a, a, a short time before. That the, the you would deny me before the rooster crows. And the Bible says that he looks at Jesus. And Jesus, who's standing there on trial, looks at Peter. And there's so much conveyed in that look. And that look was the last look Jesus gave Peter before the resurrection. Think about that. Jesus was beaten. He was crucified. All that stuff happened. And the last time that Peter saw Jesus was the look that he gave him right after Peter had denied him. The Bible says that he went out and he wept bitter tears. He was torn up about what he'd done. And then the, the Bible says that those who were holding him began to beat him and slap him, spit in his face. They mocked him. They blasphemed him. They knew he was a prophet, so they, they, they blindfolded him. And then they'd hit him and say, who was it that hit you? Hey, you're a prophet. Tell, tell us who it was that hit you. Come on, smart guy. And they mocked him. And one commentator that I read pointed out something I hadn't considered they were saying, hey, tell us which one hit you when they stood before him after they died. Remember that night that he said, which one of us hit you? I know it was you. Listen, this week's passage ends on a dark note. In fact, the next couple of weeks are pretty dark because Jesus is going to be tried 
He's going to be crucified. And that's all bad news. These guys are, are blaspheming the Lord. That's bad. But the good news came from Jesus Christ Himself, Luke 12.10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. We're in another place, Mark 3.28. says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Not in some sort of an automatic way where you say it, and all of a sudden it's just wiped clean, and, and you're back to square, zero, square ones. No, no, no sin against God. But rather, he's saying... As bad as it is, that doesn't make you unforgivable. That doesn't put you outside of the grace of God. And listen, you may be a blasphemer. You may scoff at God. You may mock Jesus. You may say all manner of things against Him. You may shake your fist in the face of heaven's King. Even as bad as that is, there's forgiveness for that. And I'm just going to tell you, you may do that today, but you won't do it one day. Because there's a day coming when you will stand before God and you'll bow the knee. And the Bible says you'll either do it willingly in this life or unwillingly in the next. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And today you may be living in sin and you know it and what's worse, God knows it. Maybe your sin isn't blasphemy. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's stealing. All sin separates us from God. But the good news of the gospel is that though you may be dirty from your sin, God will take all that and He'll wash you white as snow. He will cleanse you and forgive you, bring you into His family, if you will but repent of your sin. That means you have a change of, a change of mind, a change of heart about your sin. You turn from your sin and you turn to God in faith. You, you trust Christ alone and what He did on the cross for your salvation. And if you have never done that, again, I plead with you, do that today. And it could be that you're a Christian and you've fallen into sin. You may be like Peter and maybe you've denied the Lord. Maybe it's some other sin, but, but listen, there's forgiveness and restoration. I don't know who said it, but somebody has pointed out the difference between Peter and Judas is the difference between weakness and wickedness. What Peter did was wrong. It was sin. He denied the Lord. He fell, but he didn't fall away. He sinned, but God wasn't through with him. Confess your sins to God and let Him forgive you, and put you back into service. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I just ask you, what is your spiritual condition before the Lord today? It could be that you've gone to church, that you've been confirmed, that you've been baptized, that you've done all the, all the things 
but you've never trusted Christ for salvation. Our good works, all of our righteousness, the things that we're most proud of are as filthy rags. The only thing that will get you into heaven is faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Maybe you're a Christian. You're not living like you should. I'm not talking about perfection because there's one perfect person. That was Jesus. Using the picture of Jesus washing the feet of His disciples. You may, you may have been washed, but you need your feet clean. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful for the provision that you have offered us. We thank you for the salvation that you've extended to us the all who would believe and the message is something so simple a child can, can understand it's not, without, it's not outside anyone's reach it's not associated with money prestige, position or anything else it's been paid in full by Jesus Christ and God if there's somebody who's hearing this today I pray that if they're not a Christian that you would convict their hearts let them become your child today and God for uh, those of us who are Christians we pray for forgiveness for those times when we fail you pray that you restore that relationship thank you that you are not through with us even when we fail. God, I pray that you would move in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.